take our Bibles, turn to Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3. Last week we had turned our attention to Amos's second message. He spent his first sermon, kind of a shotgun approach, taking shots at everybody. All the surrounding pagan nations, nation of Judah, ending though with the most information being directed at Israel in verses 6 through 16 at the end of chapter 2, really laying out a a series of indictments against them. Now as we get into chapter 3, well, he's not done. God's not done talking to Israel. This is going to be his focus for the rest of the book. There may be a reference here and there to some other nations. Primarily, uh, the the message of Amos is directed at Israel. And so, so now this second message that he's given kind of builds off of what has already been said at the end of chapter 2 but now being directed more specifically at the nature of God's punishment. So we'll again be in the first eight verses. Amos chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it's caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. A lion is roared, who will not fear. The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? I think one of the issues that people often have trouble with, theologically, maybe even philosophically and practically, kind of on all levels, is the issue of God's wrath and judgment. It's a, it's a sticky issue. It can be a tricky one for folks. And, and I think that is for a couple of reasons. One, we much prefer God's love, grace, and mercy, right? I mean, let's be honest. If you were given a choice... For the rest of your life, you can hear sermons only on God's judgment or on God's love. Which one are you going for? I'm going for love. I don't know what you're going for, all right, but I'm going for the ones on love. If that's all I can hear. I mean, we're inclined to it, right? That's kind of the part of God that we prefer to talk about. So so the issue of God's wrath, of God's judgment can be tricky. I think there's a second reason, though, why it's a problem, and that is we have a hard time with language like God's wrath because we inevitably, and this is where the Bible becomes so important, we inevitably will take these words and we will fill them with our human understanding of things. Right? So in other words, we hear the word wrath. And what do we think? I mean, for a lot of folks, to talk about the wrath of, of anyone is, is, to, is to conjure up images of somebody kind of becoming unhinged, right? Flying off the handle. 
It, it is to talk about somebody who finally, after a certain amount of time, can no longer hold in his or her pent-up rage, and they just let it out. In fact, often wrath is associated then even with revenge. People getting even with those who have, who have wronged them. We associate it with, with like anger and, and these kinds of qualities that are really troublesome for us. And so here's what happens. We often hear the language of wrath, and maybe, maybe intentionally, maybe even inadvertently, we ascribe to God those kinds of things. We think of God's wrath, and we think of this rage and fury that gets poured out. Instead, the Bible does not present God's wrath that way. Not that it does not come like a fury sometimes, and not that it doesn't come with a significant amount of intimidation, but God never flies off the handle. That, that there's never a circumstance in, in which God says, all right, I, I've tried to hold it in and I just can't, and He just explodes. God's judgment is always intentional. It's deliberate. It's on purpose, and it's always deserved. It's always deserved. It's always just. It's always righteous. You and I can express wrath and anger that is neither just nor right, right? In fact, very often our anger is probably not pure and full of righteousness. So this is where a chapter like Amos chapter 3, I think, comes in, is, comes in handy. I think this is where it becomes helpful. Because what, what Amos is going to do here in this second message, again, he's building off of what is the fundamental indictment God laid out against Israel at the end of chapter 2, and, and now he's doing something he doesn't have to do, but he's doing it anyway. God's next message through Amos is a type of justification. He's justifying his wrath. He's justifying why he's going to judge them. He's justifying the nature of his judgment, what it looks like when God judges, why he's allowed to do this. Again, he doesn't have to, but this is what Amos 3 kind of lays out for us. And we started it last week looking at the ways in which this chapter, for sure these first eight verses, give us a, give us a helpful insight into what we mean when we talk about God's wrath, when we talk about God's judgment. What is the nature of it? How should we understand? And so if you have notes, the notes in front of you, um, from again, from last week, um, but I don't, I don't have any more, so sorry about that. There's no blanks to fill in because we're here, so there's no PowerPoint. I mean, we could have done all that, but that was a little bit extra work. So, uh, so the other thing that's different about these notes uh, that, you, that you might have. I, I don't have like little phrases. These are entire sentences. So again, if you don't have notes, but after tonight you'd like the notes, just let me know. All right, I'd be glad to send those to you so that you can have them in full. But we've been looking at several ways God's judgment is described in this chapter. We looked at the first one and then referenced the second from last week. So number one, the first principle about God's judgment. God as a sovereign, covenant-making God has the right to judge His people. Again, you could simplify that and just say God has the right to judge His people. But God, but God as, as being God, I mean, defined, God defined, it, it, 
that itself gives him justification. And so he makes the comment in verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. It, it, it's almost as if you know somebody may come back. After hearing Amos describe the sin of the people, then the judgment to come, it, it's almost as if somebody were coming back and were saying, this is unfair, why are you doing this to us? Because I'm God. Because I'm in charge. Because I made you. You know, it's, it's, that, it's that, fa- that famous statement, I, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. I mean, perhaps a lot of people have said that. The only, the only one who can really, really say that, though, is God. I mean, I think that's Amos chap- chapter 3, verse 2. I mean, that's, what, that's exactly what he's saying. I brought you into this world. I'm the one who made you. You're my people. Of all the people of the earth, I made you. I created you. And, and implied in all this is the special covenant relationship he had with them. So, he's, he's saying right off the bat, I, I can judge because of who I am as God, because of who you are as my people. Then, we, I just got into number two, which isn't actually explicit in the text. I made a point based on something implied. All right? it, it's, it's like a backdoor piece of good news. It's like looking at it from another perspective and saying, all right, that's kind of hard. It's hard to think that God is a God who would judge or discipline me or correct me, and that in fact, God is more inclined to do that to his people, in a sense, than he is anybody else. There is a special way that God would want to discipline and correct his own people. And then in a lot of ways, that's good news. The fact that God is doing this also reminds Israel that he still loves them. And it's kind of a strange idea, but this was the second idea. God's judgment of his people is an act of God's love for his people. It's an act of love. And we, know, we noted the verse. What, what, what is it that identifies this? Proverbs chapter 3. The Father disciplines those that he loves. God's correction upon me is an act of love. It's a way of saying, I've not given up. This is, this is what God is saying to them. I've, I've not given up. I've not turned you over to your sin. So, all that is good news. All right, let's go on to number three. New stuff for tonight. Boy, that heat is pumping. My goodness. So, we'll, let's just get through this. All right, let's shake it off. And, um, I mean, I may fall asleep while I'm preaching. All right? Um, wow. But it just got fixed. Uh, I mean, so, you know, I mean, that's what happens, right? I mean, I think some of that, there were, there were issues with some of that. But boy, it is, it is really going. All right, so number three. God promises judgment as the effect of the people's sin. In other words, God's judgment is not sprung on them. And God, God's judgment is not, again, it's not him flying off the handle. It's not like they're just rolling along, be, trying to be good children, No, the judgment is coming. They can't blame God for it because this judgment is their fault. Judgment is coming because of their sin. This is a cause and effect relationship. The judgment is coming because of their sin. So, judgment is the effect. The sin being their cause. I mean, obviously it is God doing it, but notice how he describes this. Verses 3 through 6. 
This, this is where I think Amos shows off. This is where the farm boy shows he can write poetry. Hebrew poetry. The, again, the farm boy can preach. That's what he's doing. And do so in a way that would have been very effective at communicating with his audience of the day. I have no doubt some of those uppity-ups in Bethel, all right, some of the bigwigs of Israel would have heard Amos and thought, this guy tends to sycamore fruit and goats. Because he really shows some sophisticated work here as far as Hebrew poetry is concerned. Granted, I understand this is all coming from God. Nonetheless, God, as I said last week, God always worked through the, 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 the personality and kind of the skill set of the author. He didn't override that. And so what we get is, is really a reflection of who these people are, these men are. So notice how he gives a series of cause and effect kind of relationships. So verse 3, he's going to ask a series, really he's going he's to point it out by giving rhetorical questions. He's, he doesn't want debate on these things. He's asking these questions with the answer already in the question itself. In other words, it's, it's, it's already very clearly saying a, a yes to these things. Or a no, depending on how he's worded it. All right, verse three: Can two walk together unless they are agreed? So, so this is kind of a of, of a simple idea. He he starts off with maybe something that's not necessarily aggressive. His first cause and effect. He's saying, "All right, if if you're looking out down the road, and keep in mind we're talking about a fairly arid location, and you know lots of wide open space." If you look down the road and you see two people walking together for some amount of time, that's on purpose. So you can assume that, that they did it on purpose. You may not know that, but if you can see the two walking together, how can the two walk together unless they agreed to walk together? So the walking together is evidence that they agreed to it. All right. Now, that sounds like a weird way to start this off, but just hold on, all right? Because he's going to add to that. In other words, what he's, what he's getting at is there, there is evidence that one thing leads to another. One thing implies another. So he says in verse 4, Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Well, the, the answer is no. The implication is if you hear the lion roaring in the forest... He's after something. It might be you, all right? I mean, if you, if you hear that roaring, all right, you may want to look around because it may be you. You may be lunch. The implication being, if you hear the lion roar, all right, it, he's not just doing that because he likes the sound of his voice. He's roaring because he's going after something. Then he adds to that, verse 4, will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? Again, he's asking this as if to say a general, well-known rule of the way things work. You hear the young lion cry out, it also has some goody it's playing with, all right? Meaning some animal that it also has caught, it's probably trained on it, and so now it's, it's doing its baby roar, all right? So dad did the big roar, which means it's got prey, baby's doing the roar, means it's got something also. Again, he's talking about cause and effect. You hear the one thing, and you can imply the other. Because of the one thing, the other thing is true. Verse 5, he uses another illustration from nature. Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Now the word trap, you may even have a textual note or a marginal note in the Bible that you have. That could also mean like a, like a, a bait or lure. So, so what he means is, is, will a bird fall into a 
some kind of trapping mechanism if there was not first something to lure him in. There was not some kind of bait placed there. The bird got to the trap because there was something that lured him there. So that's what he's getting at. All right? Again, the bird gets to the trap. He got there because there was something that lured him there. Notice the next one, verse 5. Will a snare spring up from the earth if it's caught nothing at all? And so, in other words, if there is a trap, is it just all of a sudden going to snap shut? Is it going to release? Is it going to do its thing unless there is something in it that has triggered its mechanism? The answer is no. So, obviously, you're not going to hear a lion roar unless there's prey. You hear it roar, you know there's prey. The, the young lion, you, you know there's something in its den. If you, there's, a, there's a bird that's in a trap, you know there was bait there. If there's a trap that's been sprung, you know that something sprung it. Cause and effect. This is, this is how things work. The one produces the other. Now, at first you might hear this and you might think, well, okay, what in the world does this have to do with? What does this have to do with judgment? Again, notice this language. Lion, prey, bird, and a snare. And we'll get to it in just a minute. He'll, he'll make it a little more explicit in the next phrase. But, but already, the folks in Israel who are listening to him should be a little nervous about the graphic nature of this language. Who's the lion? God. Who's the prey? They are. Right? Who, who, who's in the trap? They, they are. <laughs> so, so he's already giving this imagery that says, okay, these are how these things have happened. In, in other words, judgment is, is, is coming because of something that you have done. This is a cause and effect kind of a relationship. So he makes it a little more explicit in the next verse. Verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? So the reference here to the trumpet, it's probably, a, probably the shofar. You all have heard the term, right? That's kind of a term a lot of, a lot of believers have heard. The shofar is a form of a, of a Hebrew trumpet. It was made out of a ram's horn, so it kind of has this looping look to it. They could have been of all sizes, pretty standard. This trumpet could have been used for any number of things. Uh, trumpets sometimes were used as a way to call people to worship. When you read about some of the festivals, some of the sacred gatherings of God's people, sometimes they were preceded by the blow of the trumpet. When the trumpet blew, it was time to come to the temple, or it was time to engage in whatever the law commanded for that particular uh, festival or, or, day, or, or solemn day or whatever it was they were doing. Sometimes the trumpet was blown because it was announcing a victorious army returning home. So they, they, would, they would prelude the, the guys coming back with the blow of the trumpet, so it was one of victory. He doesn't mean either of those here. There's a third use of the shofar. And it was really just a warning Though it was spelling impending doom, it was used to say an invading army is coming. So from the walls, the watchmen would blow the shofar to say the enemies are approaching or the enemies are breaching or you know, they're, they've surrounded. Whatever the case may be, the shofar would have been the signal to everybody in the city they're on their way. This is for sure the, the image he has in mind here. He, he, is, he is now saying, all right, just like all these other things are true, 
If a trumpet sounds, will not people in the city be afraid? This is the nature of how it works. So the trumpet is sounded. Judgment is coming. So then he adds this in verse 6. If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? So this is what he's leading up to. Now, this is not a general statement, by the way. Do not misread verse 6. This is a verse that I've heard sometimes taken out of context as if this always means when there's some kind of calamity, God is the one responsible for doing it. Meaning He intentionally does all of these bad things whenever bad things happen. That is not what it means. Amos is talking about it in his context. Keep in mind all that he has said. He has said, judgment is coming because of your sin. And he's using all these cause and effect kinds of things to say, just like you hear a lion roar, you know it's got prey. If, you hear, if a trap is sprung, well, there's something in it. All right, if, if you hear the trumpet, then you should fear. And if calamity falls upon you, he's talking to Israel. If calamity falls upon you, Israel, you should know from this point on, if something happens that is devastating, God's done it. So this is the prophet speaking here making sure they know the one thing has caused the other. If you see this happening, and he doesn't identify what the calamity is. We've seen it in some other prophets, right? We spent a lot of time in Joel talking about how a natural disaster really was God's judgment, the locusts. We're well aware of God's ability to use any number of things to cause calamity. Just ask the Egyptians. People during Noah's day, right? There's any number of ways God could cause things. But, but He is saying this. He is saying to the people, to the king, the princes, the priests, religious leaders, the, the, the high rollers, right? The money makers, whoever they are out there, He's telling them, if calamity comes to this city, if calamity comes to this country, no, this is because the lion has caught its prey. No, it's because the long, young lion has its prey in its den. It's because the bird has been trapped in the snare. It's you. Judgment has come upon you. So again, he's justifying this. And I think what he's saying, what he's identifying here, you know, this, is, this, is, this, is the, this is the reality. God promises judgment is the effect of the people's sin. Where there is sin, there will be then God's judgment or correction. All right, number four. Last one. By the way, thank you, Charles Buck. I'm revived. Thank you, brother. Whew. Feels better. Number four, God's judgment never, and you can capitalize that, you can circle it, you can underline it, you can highlight it. There'll never be an exception to the statement that's right there. God's judgment never comes without Him first revealing the cause and the nature of it. Ever. No one is ever really caught by surprise. What I mean by that is, it's, it's not that God's judgment couldn't come swiftly and at an unknown time. The Bible does say that. The Bible says, you know, it, who knows, you know, we don't, no man knows the day or the hour, right? I mean, we know there's language like that. However, at the same time, we do know it's coming. God never judges where He does not first make it known. Where He does not first reveal 
here's, here's what's coming, here's the nature of it, and here's why. God always reveals Himself first. He's always going to make Himself known. Judgment is always made known ahead of time. There's not one exception to this in the Bible. There's not one. Every time this happens, this is how God works. Notice verse 7. Just so you don't think it's me just making stuff up. All right? That's why we preach the Bible. All right, number seven, uh, verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. So, so again, he's, he's making sure the folks in Israel can't pull this, oh, I didn't know. It's not fair. No one ever told me. I guess that email got sent to my spam. I don't know. My, my voicemail's full. I don't know. I don't know how that happened. And so none of that works. None of that works. God always makes himself known. So this is what this is. This is Amos. So again, think about this guy. Coming off the farm, I just find myself more and more impressed with Amos. Coming off the farm, talking to the most powerful people in the country and, and, and telling them God does nothing without revealing what he's going to do through his prophet. Wink, wink. You're looking at him. This, like, this is what's happening to you right now. You're being told right now. God is revealing to you what is about to come. Surely God does nothing unless he first then reveals that. God, God, and so this is another way in which God's judgment, it's important to understand, God's judgment comes only after. He reveals you know, what the sin, He reveals what the judgment's going to be, and only after immense periods of patience. So again, God doesn't fly off the handle. God never reacts. God's never a reactionary God. God is never going to, to, to do something because, because he's like, oh, I finally had it. I've had it. I just, I just have finally had it. And, uh, and so he kind of does something rash. You know, God's never impulsive. It's always calculated and determined. And so this is an example. God's going to make himself known. So, so think about this. Think about a couple of examples of big-time judgments. In fact, let's think Old Testament. And the, I, I may put this on your notes. What, what are the three biggest judgments. Now there's more, but what are the three biggest ones in the Old Testament? Flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know number three, the Exodus, Egypt, right? Now again, there's others, right? There's God's judgment against Israel, there's going to be God's judgment against uh, Judah, and we know there are various other elements of judgment God God lays out on Israel, like in the desert, or you know what God does um, through Joshua in the land of Canaan. So, but the three big ones: flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Egypt. So think about all three of those. What does God do ahead of time? Gives them a warning each time, right? Noah preaches for a hundred years. A hundred years. Wow. That's quite a pastorate, right? I mean, that's a long time doing this with everybody telling you you're crazy. I mean, that's a long time, but, that, but that's what Noah, God, God used Noah as his prophet. And then, and then how about Sodom and Gomorrah? Not, not, not only, you know, do, do, we have, uh, do we have God sending a messenger he sends angels. 
I mean, you can't get any, any more direct than that or, uh, or uh, gracious than that. God, God sends heavenly emissaries at this point to, to inform this is what's coming. And then, of course, we know Egypt. God sends Moses. Not only does he make it clear, he gives him signs. Say, this is what's going to happen. Let my people go. So each time, God always makes himself known. God always reveals what, what, is, what is about to happen. And that, that is God in his goodness and God in his grace. And so then notice how Amos finishes this up. And again, just notice the poetic symmetry here. This is, this is what I find really amazing. So he's talked about the roaring of the lion. He's already talked about this already in the first two chapters, by the way. But he does again here in verse 8. A lion has roared who will not fear. The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So again, what Amos is doing is he's tying back in with, with the, the, the rhetorical device he's already used. Will a lion roar in the forest if he has no prey? So now he's saying, the lion has roared. And so Israel, you should fear. Because you're the prey. And the, the Lord has spoken. So he's already indicated God does nothing unless he first speaks. And so who's the designated proclaimer? Well, he uses a prophet. And so who can but prophesy? So, so, so not, not only has the lion roared, and so the people should fear. The trumpet has sounded. But God also has spoken. And he has spoken through his prophet. And so now the people are even that much more accountable to everything that has been said. <clears throat> Again, we, we've got, I think, some really helpful material here. A great, a great way to help us understand what is the nature of God's judgment. God always makes himself known ahead of time. He reveals ahead of time what he's going to do, why he's going to do it, how he's going to do it. Again, we may not always know all the timing of it, but no one can plead ignorance. No one can say, I would never know. Now, I know what you may be thinking. Because often this is um, th this this gets thrown in, especially like in evangelism, and when you know when you're talking about um, doing apologetics and that kind of thing. Because because I, I just said, no one's going to be without excuse. God always makes Himself known. His judgment is to come. And somebody may say, well, what about what about somebody in deepest darkest Africa? What about, what about somebody who was born and raised in a Muslim culture, doesn't even, have, doesn't even know what a Bible is? This is where a verse like Romans 1.18 becomes really powerful. Because it says that God's wrath has been revealed so that no one is without excuse. And in fact... He goes on to say in Romans 1, he says, God's wrath has been revealed so that even God's invisible attributes have been made known. So don't let anybody kind of trick you with that one. That's a red herring. That's, 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 a, that's an attempt of somebody else to get you off track. Um, in fact, it, he, here's a little bit of advice for you. Uh, doing evangelism maybe go ahead and have Amos 3.7. It's not your typical verse that gets memorized for evangelistic presentations. 
but I think it'd be a good one. Just to go ahead and have in your back pocket the verse, the Lord does nothing without first revealing Himself. God has made Himself known. Go ahead and have that verse ready to say, well, here's what the Bible says about this. The, the, the Bible says that, that no man is without excuse. Every man stands guilty. God's made Himself known. You can even quote then Amos 3.7. God always makes Himself known. He's revealed Himself. So it doesn't matter if somebody in deepest, darkest Africa has, do, doesn't know just as I am. All right, It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they don't know John 3.16. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Not believing John 3.16 is not what... That's not what invites somebody's judgment. God's judgment. God's judgment doesn't come because somebody doesn't know Jesus or denies the gospel. To be sure, denying the gospel will bring God's judgment. But people deserve judgment long before they ever hear the first whisper of the good news of the gospel. This is the kind of thing that is underlying Amos. God's made himself known. His attributes have been revealed. No one's without excuse. We would do well then to remember that as as God has made Himself known, then what is our obligation? To be the prophet. I mean, you're not a prophet like Amos, all right? You're not a Bible prophet. But you can be prophetic. And I don't mean you're going to tell the future, but you can tell the truth. You can be prophetic by telling the truth. Sharing the gospel. God's made Himself known. Now we're obligated to share it. And so we should do just that. So let us be those kind of people. All right, so um, we'll... We'll see on uh, next Wednesday night. We'll sing, all right? And I, I don't think Amos is in any of it, all right? Though if you come up with a little ditty about Amos 3, we could try. It's not very Christmassy, though. So we'd have to try that some other time. But we'll get back together next uh, Wednesday night. Enjoy that time of blessing uh, some of our folks with uh, some, some Christmas good wishes and blessings. And, uh, and then, uh, then hopefully uh, be blessed in return. Undoubtedly, we will be. Uh, as we minister to them. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again for the gathering of your people. We are privileged to be here and to have studied your word, and we just continue to ask for understanding and application, that we would understand who you are as God and what that means, not only in your love and grace, but also in your judgment and wrath, and the obligation not only to declare to a lost and dying world that there is a Savior, that there is a God who loves them, that there is a God who will save them in Christ Jesus, that the God's grace is sufficient to save anyone from any sin. May that message be on our lips, but may we not ignore the other side of that truth, and that is that those who reject you, those who live in rebellion to you, will face your judgment. God, may, may, we, may we proclaim the whole gospel as we share with the lost world the, the beauty and glory of salvation and the danger of rejecting it. I thank you for these who've gathered here tonight. I pray, God, they would know your hand upon them, leading and guiding them in the days to come as they seek to live by faith and be a blessing to one another and glorify you. We pray that you would then gather your people back together again, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.